This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I'm speaking with Mary Martin Devlin about The La Motte Woman, the second of her novels set in pre-revolutionary France. We all know the clichés of the French Revolution, Marie Antoinette saying, let the meat cake, the storming of the Bastille, entire aristocratic families sent to the guillotine, where Devlin excels is in revealing the extravagance and obliviousness and sheer bad luck that drove those outside the ancient noblesse d'épée first to despair and then to violence. But at the very beginning of The La Motte Woman, there are still grounds for hope. The two girls, their arms encircling heavy gutter pipes, dangle precariously from the attic window of a fashionable dressmaker's workroom in the Palais Royal. For over an hour, they had been waiting for the fanfare that would announce the passage of the royal carriages with the Dauphin and his bride, the Austrian Archduchess Marie Antoinette. The newlyweds would proceed down the Rue de Rivoli, past the Tuileries, to the Place Louis XV, where the day's festivities would begin. It was a bright spring day in 1770, and Paris was in a delirium of joy. By night, the city was a fairyland with lanterns strung along the rooftops, around windows, across streets. Notre-Dame Cathedral shimmered, a gauzy, glittering phantasm on the Seine. Fountains in every square overflowed with red and white wine. Loaves of bread lay so thick on the streets that even the poor did not bother to stoop and pick them up. France was alive with hope. Louis-Auguste the Dauphin was 16 years old, pious, frugal, and reserved. Marie-Antoinette, 15 a golden child glowing with innocence, and these two, when they reached the throne, would surely right the wrongs and cure the miseries of the reign of the Dauphin's grandfather, the pleasure-besotted Louis XV. They aren't coming, Jeanne, one of the girls said, shrilling above the babble of the crowd in the street below. It's gone ten o'clock. She looked leaden with disappointment. And now, please join me in welcoming Mary Martin Devlin. Mary, I look forward to talking with you today. And I with you, Carolyn. Let's go. 
You spent much of your career as a professor of English and creative writing at Mount Holyoke College. Uh, how did you branch out from that to writing historical fiction, especially fiction set in 18th century France? Actually, I did my undergraduate degree in French literature, went on to do a master's in uh, French with a minor in English, and then uh, went to France uh, with a Fulbright uh, scholarship. But when it came to doing my Ph.D., um, I, I think because I had done my, my minor, uh, uh, my, my thesis uh, on the M.A. in French, I decided to uh, do my Ph.D. in um, English with, um, I, I, I again did another master's in English and then the doctorate in, uh, in English. And as for uh, uh, writing historical fiction, I think because I grew up loving historical fiction, I, you know, I was learning and, and being entertained and at the same time, and it was my favorite uh, genre and still is. If, uh, with my preferences, I, I want to read uh, history or, or historical fiction, even though my specialty was the American novel at Mount Holyoke. Although I notice you also have a book set in 1980s Zaire called Death and the Rainy Season. Uh, whatever our kids think, that's not historical fiction yet. Can you give us a brief summary of that book and how you came to write it? Yes, indeed, it is not historical fiction. I, I suppose you would, you know, place it as mainstream fiction. And here I probably ought to pause to give a little bit of personal background so that you understand where that uh, novel came from. Uh, I was teaching, uh, I was a Fulbright professor at the University of Tunis, uh, and I got an urgent call from Paris, from USIA, the uh, U.S. Information Agency, which is the cultural branch of, uh, of the State Department. They had had a dropout with a uh, sub-Saharan lecture in uh, French, and they were desperate to fill it and uh, called me to see whether I would go down. And since we were at, at the university uh, approaching spring break, I did uh, go down for this Francophone Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa tour. And much to my surprise, it was uh, uh, a real success. And so that for several years thereafter, when Mount Holyoke was on winter term in January, I would leave uh, snowy New England and go down to to Africa uh, to to lecture. And uh, during that period, I met and uh, later married uh, the legendary CIA officer uh, Larry Devlin. And this is going to sound borderline insane, but I resigned from my Holyoke uh, as a full professor with tenure and went off to live in Africa. And um, that period of living in Africa, where because of Larry's situation, I was able to uh, really to mingle or be involved with so many layers of the society out there so that I, when I came back to Washington, I really, really wanted to preserve all the memories of the characters I had known there, uh, although the the novel is truly not autobiographical except for uh, the purely African experiences that I had, which I give, and the characters are all uh, composites of uh, people I had, met, I had met through the years. 
really fascinating. Um, your first French novel, Precious Pawn, is set in the 1740s and 1750s. It follows the tragic story of Diane de Fautrière. Uh, tell us about the memoir that sparked this novel. The, the memoir, uh, unpublished memoir, was used by one of my closest friends and colleagues at Mount Holyoke in the French department uh, in her translation and stylistics course. And she asked me to double-check her translation, not being a native uh, speaker, uh, of the memoir. And um, ever after, that, I don't know, that story haunted me. Um, this young girl, this child, really, who, 14 or 15, was taken to Paris uh, to the court of Louis the Fifteenth, probably the most debauched of... Uh, Look, a, a place in the entire universe, and groomed his beautiful, extraordinarily beautiful daughter to make a a brilliant, brilliant marriage. So, uh, how did you turn that memoir into a novel? I mean, your novel's much longer, obviously, and more filled in, but and you have translations of his epigraphs uh, throughout the chapters. But did you also expand it, adapt it, change it in some way? It's 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 really largely ex expanded, uh, especially with the characters, because in writing, I don't know about you, but I invest so much thought and uh, and imagination in creating characters. And but the the novel does follow the tragic uh, uh, narrative arc of the of the young of the young Diane de Fautrière, and. In the scenes, now, as far as her uh, father's plans for her, they went way beyond his expectations because she caught the eye of Louis XV himself, and there was a prolonged flirtation of him, with him, sorry, uh, with him, uh, at, during which she almost became his official mistress at but she was um, set aside for Madame de Pompadour, who was, of course, much, much more uh, experienced, was older, more experienced, and from the time she was a, a, a child, uh, fortune tellers had predicted that she would be the wife of uh, the king. So she was, she had her obsession in mind. But uh, the scenes in which she meets first meets uh, Louis XV and all the scenes during her flirtation with him uh, or his flirtation with her, it would be more exact, um, those are take, uh, that is taken really uh, almost uh, word for word from, uh, from the memoir. But uh, as you say, the memoir is quite slight, but I kept uh, the frame the narrative frame, but all of the characters, and I added only one key character to her life, and that is Armand, uh, who becomes her lover, um, because I wanted that poor child to have at least some joy in, in her life. So before we move on to the Lamotte woman, uh, could, you give us, uh, could you expand a little bit on your description of the court of Louis Fifteenth of Versailles and the general atmosphere of aristocratic society at that time, because it does act as a backdrop to the new novel. Well, as I mentioned before, uh, and, and particularly uh, Louis the Fort, 
it, particularly with Louis XV, uh, it was uh, a pleasure-driven place, uh, utterly pleasure-driven, pleasure dissipated, debauched, uh, and so forth. Uh, Louis XIV, who was a bit of a pious prig at times, um, had almost a diabolical scheme of creating Versailles, this enormous uh, palace, uh, to bring his aristocratic rivals under his roof so that they would do what he he thought they would do, which is they would backstab each other to uh, garner his favor and and fight each other over honors and 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 so forth, so that the aristocracy really was weakened. It, uh, they were like D D Diane's uh, father. They were they neglected their estates and they became impoverished. And the, by the time Louis the Fifteenth uh, ascended to the throne, it was really uh, it was really a peacock parade every day. Uh, men and women were very similar in uh, in dress and behavior uh the men wore heavy makeup uh they wore wigs they wore satins and lace and stockings and high heels uh and they had a, a very it was referred to as supeci the other country and they had their own little mannerisms and behaviors for instance they um they uh, did not knock at a door they scratched at a door, and the women had, uh, I have a hard time visualizing this, but they they didn't really step. They had a kind of slide or glide to their, to, uh, their walk. Um, it was... It was really not the place that you would want to bring your uh, extraordinarily beautiful young daughter. No, especially not at 14, which I think is what she was when she got there. Barely 14, as I recall. So let's move on now. Uh, I won't ask you my usual question about what drew you to the story of the Diamond Necklace Affair, because it's a story that's so tailor-made for fiction, I can't imagine any novelist not being drawn to it. But how did you find out about it? Well, you know, it is it is such a major turning point in in French history, and you know, starting with uh, Alexandre Dumas, you know, the French have been at it writing novels and plays and so forth uh, about it. So it is it, and you get fascinated by and and I can remember being my first uh, sort of uh, notice of. Um, of Jean de la Mode, of the Lamotte woman, was in reading uh, Thackeray's Vanity Fair with Becky Sharp, and reading that Becky Sharp was uh, inspired by Jean de la Mode. And uh, I thought that was, uh, I loved Becky Sharp, uh, that, you know, that little vixen, but uh, it, it inspired me to, to look further into the possibilities with the a long, long time ago. So sketch the background for us, please. What's going on in France in 1770? What does the populace hope that the Dauphin and his bride can correct? Well, 
they, you know, uh, Marie Antoinette, and a lot of, you know, the condemnation of her, I think, you know, is, is a bit misplaced because uh, she was just a teenager when she came to France, and she was frivolous and reckless and, and you know, teenagery. Uh, I think that film, uh, Marie Antoinette of uh, uh, Kirsten Dunst, just really did portray Marie Antoinette as she actually was. But there was so much hope after the darkness that because Louis the Fifteenth, who had started out as such a beloved uh, uh, king, absolutely worshipped by his um, by his people. Uh, I mean, he turned into a bloated old sex addict, no interest in government. It was Madame de Pompadour who actually ran the country, you know. Um, um, appointing ambassadors and so forth. So the wedding of uh, Louis the 16th with uh, Marie Antoinette was a joyous occasion, but I must say uh, the bloom was uh, very quickly off the rose for Marie Antoinette. She uh, uh, Louis could not perform his marital duties for 7 solid years. Uh, she was you know, she was just having a good time and spending money hand over fist and particularly diamonds. I, I should have said, you know, uh, that the story of Jean de la Mutt is, I mean, it is ready made for fiction, but I started out telling it with uh, three different narrators, Jean, the Cardinal, and Bagnot. Because I thought, you know, it'd be nice to have something like a Rashomon uh, uh, development where the reader will be able to make up his own mind or her own mind about whether this narrator is reliable or unreliable. And it, because each one of those three is so distinguished in language, et cetera, et cetera, it would just it really just rolled along. The writing was a pleasure every single morning to, to sit down at my computer and go at it. And then I got to one of the later scenes, and it is a scene, and I could not figure out, it was impossible that any one of the three narrators narrate, tell that, describe that scene. Impossible. I had to have a witness, and I couldn't figure out any plausible witness for what happened. So I had to start all over again and rewrite the novel as an omniscient, from the omniscient point of view, and particularly the limited third person point of view. That's really interesting. I mean, I would, I, we could talk for the rest of the time about that, because, um, you know, the, those are big questions, how, how that affects uh, a particular story. But I'm, I'm glad to know that. I mean, that's really, uh, I'm sure it was helpful, in, nonetheless, to have done all that work telling the story from the different points of view. I mean, it, they are very distinct personalities, and you can see yeah. that. Yeah, it was. It was, it, was a, uh, it was a tremendous step forward, really. Um, but it, I still wish I could have finished the novel with those three. But you do get the voice in, in the novel with the epilogue, which belongs to Bagnot, uh, the survivor. Uh, you, you do get his voice, and you can understand more of his character through that uh, epilogue uh, to the novel. 
This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So let's start with Jeanne de Saint-Rémy, which is how she's known when she first appears. Um, she's just about as different in personality as anyone could be from Diane de Fautrière. But uh, who is Jeanne in terms of her birth and her place in Parisian society? Well, in point of fact, she was uh, actually what she claimed to be. Uh, she was a descendant of the royal blood of uh, King Henry II, uh, a the Valois king, and her uh, grandfather was the legitimized, uh, not legitimate, you know, but legitimized uh, son of Henry II, and her father was this uh, baron, the baron de Saint-Rémy, so she was actually born, uh, unlike the false countess title that she assumed later in life, she was actually uh, a princess of the royal blood, uh, but uh, it was no longer the Valois kings uh, who reigned uh, France. But her father was a typical aristocrat who neglected everything, and she was born into utmost poverty. She was a beggar uh, on the streets of Paris. Her mother was a prostitute who ran uh, after the father died. She ran off with a soldier, uh, left uh, very generously, left the uh, two children she left behind, the brother and um, and Jean and Marianne, the the little little baby was left with a farmer back in uh, in their hometown. She let the mother very generously <clears throat> left the two children uh, a big bag of chestnuts, but that was all. And Jeanne was a beggar. She would go into taverns and inns and tell her story of being a royal princess and uh, et cetera, et cetera. And she would also hitch a ride, uh, step up on the uh, side of, of uh carriages of the aristocrats going to their country places from Paris. And she was, as luck would have it, she hitched onto the carriage of a couple who were massively important in Paris, and the, uh, the Marquise uh, de Boulainvilliers, 
uh, who was a very, uh, she was a fan of genealogy, and she thought, well, wouldn't this be uh, something to to talk about if I, if this little urchin, uh, dirty as she is, and uh, if she, her claims proved to be true. So she took the children in, all three of them, raised them, educated them, etc., and worked years and years and years to get the official genealogist of uh, Louis the Sixteenth to recognize uh, Jeanne's claim, and Jeanne and her, her brother and her sister were given royal pensions, which should have satisfied Jeanne for the rest of life, but of course uh, it didn't. And that's the understatement of the world. Yes, uh, from the beginning, we see Jeanne has what we might call a flexible relationship with the truth. So how would you characterize her personality? Oh, my goodness. Of where to start? She was not, you know, your your. She had a, a powerful uh, influence on men. I mean, she was uh, she was quite a magnet for men, but she was not your typical femme fatale. She didn't have that dark, mysterious side. She was more the wild side, you know, gay. Uh, never, you would never be bored with her. Charming, and uh, the truth was. Uh, not something that she thought she had to indulge in unless absolutely necessary, like Becky Sharp or Becky Sharp like her. Uh, she was opportunist. Uh, she had no qualms about dedicating her high baroque sex life to her uh, ambition. Uh, she, she was uh, clever and... Um, manipulative. But she also must have been endowed with a tremendous charm. Yeah, she is very much like Becky Sharper. I'm, I'm impressed that that's an actual literal, you know, it's, it's an intended connection. Because when I was reading the book, I thought, my goodness, she's a lot like Becky Sharp. And of course, Becky Sharp is tremendously appealing. Maybe not if you have to deal with her in everyday life, but to read about. I mean, people like this are wonderful. Yes, exactly, exactly. So uh, part of her appeal is that she is the quintessential survivor. She always lands on her feet. Um, and how, for example, does she go from being Jeanne de Saint-Rémy to Jeanne de Lamotte? She and her sister, uh, and this is a little bit complicated to go into, but they ended up <clears throat> back in their hometown, back sur Aube, where their chateau fontaine, uh, she always came back to me. She she wanted to impress uh, everybody that she had uh, who had known her as a little beggar uh, and uh, of the Baron de Saint Remy. Uh, she wanted to impress them, and she ended up there. And in, uh, she and her sister ended up in what they thought was an inn, but it actually was a brothel. And they were rescued by the young uh, Bugno the son of a bourgeois, a very well-to-do bourgeois family. And Jean of Bugno, of course, was immediately smitten with Jean. That was his first love. And he helped get her and her sister established in a minor aristocratic well-to-do household there in um, in Bar. And during that time, and it was a couple of years, um, she got into really serious trouble with the baron, with the bishop, 
with the Bishop de Langres. And uh, we had to get married. And the Bishop de, de Langres negotiated a marriage um, with uh, Nicholas de la Motte, who was a feckless, ne'er-do-well grenadier in an obscure uh, regiment. And it was not a, uh, a love match, uh, to be sure, uh, but it was one of those um, go-along, get-along marriages where his gifts uh, with pawn shops and so forth suited her. She always provided the money in the uh, in the marriage, and uh, he was very compliant with her what with her conduct as she was with his gambling and so forth. Yeah, she has many lovers, most of them after her marriage, uh, as was quite characteristic of 18th century European aristocratic marriages. But uh, I'm glad you brought up Bagneau, uh, because I uh, I really wanted to talk about him a little bit. But also, uh, the most important relationship, perhaps, at least in terms of the diamond necklace affair, is the uh, her love affair with the Cardinal Prince, Cardinal Prince Louis de Rohan, uh, who, despite his high ecclesiastical office, has no inhibitions about taking a mistress. So how does she meet him, and what can you tell us about him and their relationship? Uh, she, uh, she met the Cardinal Prince through the Marquise de Boulainvilliers, and it was almost an immediate uh, connection. Um, he is um, he's a complex character he was extraordinarily handsome uh, he was known as the Adonis of the church and uh, Jean was certainly uh, not his first uh, conquest if you can call it that uh, I don't know uh, the church well enough to know at what time uh, uh, the church decided that uh, sexual relationships uh, uh were inappropriate for men of the cloth, but it certainly was not true of the 18th century. I mean, there was the Bishop de Langres and before the Cardinal uh, Cardinal Prince with, with uh, Jeanne, at least. And um, the towards the end of the novel, she, Jeanne, stops for dinner at an abbey, and the abbot and monks uh, receive her with, you know, great courtesy because, as uh, Munyo says, she was uh, a princess of the church. They considered her a princess of the church. Uh, that's kind of tw- uh, tw- how twisted things can get. Uh, the uh, the cardinal. I tell you that the the story of the, uh, the Lamont woman. It's a story of three. Uh, obsessions. There was Jeanne's obsession with her royal blood. There was the Cardinal's obsession with becoming Prime Minister of France and especially gaining the favor of Marie Antoinette. And the third was the obsession of those stubborn, bullheaded uh, crown jewelers who who had this extravagant necklace on their hands that was driving them into bankruptcy, yet they refused to break up the stones and sell it to... They they wanted to sell that uh, necklace to uh, Marie Antoinette. So the cardinal, even though he was the youngest member of the... He was not only handsome, but he was extremely intelligent. 
and he was the youngest member ever uh, admitted to the Académie Française, the youngest. And yet, Jeanne had him eating out of her hands every step of the way. She extracted enormous sums of, sums of money from him without his ever knowing where that money was really going. Uh, it was it was really quite she was really quite something in that regard. Yeah, she was, and he genuinely loves her, at least in your novel. Uh, even even after he's well aware of what she's done to him, he's, he continues to love her. That's right. That's right. Uh, in all those terrible scenes um, where he's confronted with her, after he knows that he is where he is, that she is, as he says, and, and on so many of these... Uh, words. There are so many memoirs of this. This is the most well-documented uh, historical event I can think of. But with all these memoirs, I even am able to quote verbatim their words. He had enormous uh, tenderness for her in their confrontations after he knew that, as he said, she had ripped his life, his fortune, everything to pieces. Uh, he still wanted to take care of her. He still uh, he, he didn't want anything, any harm to come to her. It, knowing what she had done and how, I, you know, it's very hard to understand, really. It's very, very hard to understand. And Bernio when he, uh, in his memoirs, when he talks about finding and reading the, a few, just a few of the love letters of uh, the Cardinal to Jean, he was absolutely stunned because he had never, ever thought that any man could be so possessed of this raw, fierce passion, because as, as Bernier would say, he was an economic, uh, emotionally economical person, and he, he was a level-headed lawyer and a bourgeois, and he stayed that way even through the years of his great eminence. Yes, and, and that's an example of how distinctive they are um, as a trio. So even with milking the cardinal for all he's worth, um, Jeanne is still not satisfied, uh, which gets in part to your um, comment that she's obsessed and in part to the earlier comment that she, um, you know, despite having been acknowledged and given the pension and so on, she just can't let go. And so this brings us to the diamond necklace affair itself. Now, I don't know how much you want to say to the audience. This is really up to you. Uh, I have to say watching her work is uh, a good part of the fun of the novel because you figure out pretty quickly what is true and what's not true. Um, but, uh, but do describe the necklace itself and then tell us whatever you want us to, to know about this. Uh, you know, I... I cannot imagine any woman, particularly any woman that is slim and whatever, wearing uh, that necklace. It's worth, uh, you know, going to Wikipedia and getting a picture of it, because there are many, many pictures of of this uh, uh, necklace. And it, and it kind of amused me with this French series, Lupin, where, you know, they, they, they play kind of a spoof on the uh, uh, Queen's necklace, because what is presented is this... 
a small little piece of jewelry, whereas the real necklace was 650 diamonds, some of them as large as hazelnuts. It was almost 3,000 carats. It was enormous. It was huge. The presentation case was the size of a welcome mat. It and the tassels of, of the the, the uh, stream of diamonds descended. It was called the La Riviere. They, the jewelers in, invented that term. And uh, the stream and the stream of diamonds descended all the way to the navel. And the uh, the uh, necklace was designed by Bassinge. They were the uh, and, and well, Burma was the um, the salesman. They were the crown jewelers, really, of every court in uh, in, in Europe. And they had uh, designed the uh, necklace with Madame du Barry, who was the last mistress of uh, Louis the Fifteenth. Uh, they had designed it for her because they knew very well that the sex-addled king would pay for it and it was it was a price uh, in the in the that would bankrupt a nation no no other it was peddled all over europe and no other kingdom would buy it because it was it would have bankrupted the whole whole nation but uh, louis up and dies and therefore uh, madame du Barry was no longer at court she was pretty much uh, exiled and they were stuck uh, with this uh, with this necklace. From a historical perspective, now rather than that of your novel, uh, why did Napoleon say that the death of Queen Marie Antoinette was the result of the diamond necklace affair? I I think because Marie Antoinette had created had had been so reckless that her reputation had been in tatters. But the diamond necklace affair galvanized all of Europe. I mean, it was, as we would call it today, that trial was a media frenzy. And that brought her name over. She became the central figure in that trial. Did she know? Did she participate? Was she involved? That is still, in history, an ambiguous question, um, simply because of how the king uh, and how the king and uh, Maria Antoinette behaved uh, after uh, the diamond necklace uh, trial. But the um, the way she was vilified in the streets of Paris in every possible way in drawings, these pornographic uh, drawings of her German vice, which was lesbianism. Um, There were dirty songs sung uh, under the windows of just about everybody in Paris. It was just a horrible, uh, her reputation, she was thrown into the gutter. She was, from that time on, she became known as the Austrian whore. And um, and Austria had Having been forever uh, a traditional enemy of of the French, and um, her death sentence really, really, uh, uh, but as I think Napoleon meant that 
there was no redeem. She had no redeeming characteristics. She was not to be redeemed whatsoever. And Mirabeau, the great statesman, said the diamond necklace uh, affair was the prelude to the French Revolution, which indeed it really was. Yes, and you can see why it would be. Frankly, I mean, just what you say about the um, the expense of the necklace, uh, the fact that it was even considered would have been enough to awaken people to the idea that their government might not have had their best interests at heart. Let's put it that way. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. what would you like people to take away from the Lamont woman? Gosh, it's it's such a rich story, isn't it? Well, I suppose. I don't know. Uh, I'm fond of irony, so I, I would say one ironic aspect to the whole novel is that uh, one woman uh, in an age where uh, women had virtually no value uh, uh, and sometimes uh, a nice racehorse was uh, superior uh, to that woman, um, I would say it's such an irony that this woman was so instrumental in propelling the destruction of the entire uh, monarchy. The second would be, and I think much more important, this woman who valued her royal blood uh, more than anything else in her life, uh, that, uh, that was the driving force in her life, her, her notion of all, the, uh, all of the wealth and accoutrements that go with being royal, that she should be so instrumental in destroying the monarchy itself that that seems to me so such an ironic twist to the whole matter that she after uh, all of her writings everything that that was really like uh, so much poison uh, drip 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 uh, after um, after the trial well, it's certainly a very good point. Um, this book came out last month. Are you already working on something new? I'm browsing, and I just love the I, I love the possibilities of the internet, where you can, you know, uh, go on the Bibliothèque Nationale and you know, memoir of Bernier, and you know, it's free. You can you download it in about two minutes. And it, you just have a wealth of material to uh, at your fingertips with the internet. I remember going to the old Bibliothèque Nationale, where it was located in the heart of of Paris, and getting the first photocopy of uh, the unpublished memoir of the uh, Comtesse de L. And um, it took, you know. I had to make my request one day, come back and pick up the photocopy the next day, and it cost, I think, as I recall, it was over $100. And whereas now you have so much free information right at your fingertips, it's just, it's, so I'm browsing now. I'm browsing. Okay, well, keep me posted on what you uh, settle on, and uh, maybe we can talk again someday. Thank you so much for spending your time with us today. I've really enjoyed it, Carolyn. I really have enjoyed it. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I am C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books and Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with Mary Martin Devlin about the Lamotte woman. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books Histfic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. 
You can find out more about me and my books at www.cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network.